When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Believe it or not. Believe it or not, incomparable, inimitable, illimitable, inestimable, introducer of immeasurable, incalculable, incredible impossibilities. Welcome to Ripley's Believe It or Not cast, the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan. I'm Brent. And so, Ryan, much like with blues music um blues music can elevate the spirit of people who are suffering from the blues right when i'm down when i'm lonely i'm just listening to some blues music so i think what we're doing today is is we're really testing to see if there's a modern corollary maybe so it's this Will examining insane theories about the end of the world make us feel better about the pandemic? <laughs> Do you think? I'm gonna say I'm gonna say I'm gonna say maybe. <laughs> uh, I, I think I, I think it will. I, don't know. I think it will. Um, I think we can only go up sure. from here. And and right above us right now is um, examining theories about the end of the world. Um, which makes total sense if you think about it, right? Right, right, no, right. No. Well, what I was thinking is, make any is sense we can examine. I think I think we can examine other things that are going to end the world because we know the world isn't going to end. I think we could say that ever. Like, or you this mean right isn't now? End the world. I mean, I mean, right now. I mean, right now. Like what we're going through. Like. Like, this is tough times, and I understand that. And we can be serious about that. But one of the things that we can do is we can, like, okay, well, let's not look at that right now. Let's look at other things that some credible people think about how the world will eventually come to an end, right? Yes. I think we've we've nailed the gist of what we're, we're diving into. Um, and by the way, we should also mention that... Um, um, this episode was actually discussed and planned months ago, um, but it, it just right. happened to turn out that we, you know, we nailed it. We nailed the landing. Yes, we were the luckiest people in the world because our plan just happened to coincide with a worldwide pandemic. Yeah. So, but then as as the weeks went on, we kind of um, we became immersed in this, and we're all sheltered in place. Um, and it's kind of freaky and scary. And we wondered if we should even move forward with this topic. Right. But right. we're not really talking about the pandemic on this episode. We're, we're talking about when certain people, including scientists and religious groups and followers of Nostradamus, think the world will actually end. Um, other than our intro here, there's no talk of the coronavirus. There's nothing like that. It's just pure, unfiltered, like end of the world apocalyptic stuff. So. Don't worry. Uh, so instead, let's go back to the time of the Great Plague, right? It's France, 1503. Nostradamus is born. 
He's one of at least nine children. We don't really know exactly how many, but at least nine. He grows up. He goes to university. uh, But he has to leave after a year because of the plague. So he, he goes. He's traveling the countryside as an apothecary or what we would call uh, a pharmacist. Is it is it Nostradamus? Like Nostradamus or is it Nostradamus? Yeah. Are you sure? Well, uh, it's one of those things. It's one of those things that we talked about before. Uh, I think you could go either way. Do you, want, do you want to flip a coin or what should we do? Oh, I already said Nos. So I, I I already said Nos. All right, let, I'll go with Nos. Oh, did you? After, oh, so, I, I, I yeah. didn't even hear that. Okay. So Nostradamus, um, yeah. after visiting Italy, the story goes, he transitions to working in the occult, writing almanacs and horoscopes. He marries and starts to give psychic advice, eventually writing a book of 1,000 quatrains, the undated prophecies for which he's most known today. So feeling vulnerable to opposition to multiple religious groups, he devised a method of obscuring his meanings by using different syntax, different languages and kind of word games. So these prophecies are still celebrated, debated and investigated today. And today we're talking to Victor Baines, president of the Nostradamus Society of America (laughs) and author of Remember the Future, The Prophecies of Nostradamus. Baines says there are several events that can be interpreted as being predicted by Nostradamus. (laughs) Okay, well, my name is Victor Baines. I'm an author and researcher and publisher. Uh, I authored a book. The first version came out in about 1992, or no, it was like 94 titled uh, The Prophecies of Nostradamus, Remember the Future, The Prophecies of Nostradamus, by me, Victor Baines, published by Holographic Books. So he died in 1566. Let's move forward 100 years into the future after his death. Uh, There's only like nine actual dates printed in his book. And one of those is the year 1666. And he talks about a great fire in London and he puts the year 1666 in the quadrain. Well, that's indeed what happened in London in 1666. About half the city almost burned to the ground. So that's a real uh, milestone there as far as him being an accurate prophet. Move forward in time a little bit after that. In the late 1700s, early 1800s, he prophesied the French Revolution and uh, the rise and fall of Napoleon Bonaparte. And then later... Uh, that later on, uh, Hitler, during the 30s and 40s, now he, he had a uh, saying, that is, well, a term he came up with, this comes from the Bible, Antichrist, uh, based in Greek, Antichristos, uh, three Antichrists of Europe, uh, Napoleon being the first one, and Hitler being the second one, we'll talk about the third one here later. So, uh, after World War II, he did predict uh, uh, the Cold War. Uh, the rise and, and fall uh, of, of communism and the ending of the Cold War and actually the Berlin Wall falling. Hmm. Uh, he very, uh, 1969, uh, predicted landing on the moon. And he has several quatrains that uh, pertain to outer space and the space race. To move forward after that real quickly, a desert storm, there's three or four quatrains that pertain to that. And at least four that pertain to 9-11. And Nostradamus had a very interesting take on the end of the world. So back to that third Antichrist of Nostradamus, he hasn't appeared yet. 
But I think he's going to be on the scene in the next decade or two. You could call right now from 19, excuse me, from the 2020s to 2030. These will be looked looked back upon as what's left of the good old days, okay? Mm. Global warming is going to start tearing things up. Uh, now we have this new coronavirus. I don't know if that's going to end up being nothing to sweat about or whether that's going to be something really big and stinky for society to deal with. It's a little bit early to tell. Long story short, he says, like the enemies of Jesus Christ will be multiplying greatly and that such a huge pestilence will occur that uh, it will remove two-thirds of the population of the earth. And he uses the word pestilence. Now, you can look that up in a dictionary. Pestilence could refer to something like a plague, something biological, but you can also play with the definition of the word to mean uh, some other type of great affliction, okay? Yeah. So I don't know specifically what he has in mind for two-thirds of the population of the earth to be removed. That could be due from nuclear war, could be done from uh, you know nuclear fallout, or it could be some plague or biological agent. But that would seem like the end of the world, at least a two-thirds of the population but uh, it will not be. 3797 will be the official end of, of the world, according to him. And then, another quatrain, he mentions uh, the sun burning out in the year 7000. So Nostradamus says 3797 is the end of the world, with 7000 being the year when the sun burns out. So, hey, so does that mean that we have something like 3200 years after the end of the world and before the sun like what's going on until the sun burns out you know what i mean yeah it's just cockroaches and robots it's it's <laughs> wally um all right but here here's the thing there's a super mnemonist named tom meyer who says christians interpret the end of the world a bit differently Meyer is known as the bible memory man because he's memorized 20 entire books of the bible He's also a professor at Shasta Bible College and graduate school in California. As you probably know, the, the Bible has 66 books in it, and you really have to take all 66 books uh, together when understanding what's called eschatology or the end times. To leave one book or one piece of the puzzle out will not give you the complete picture. So one book relies on another book, which relies on another book in, in some sense. But as we know, Revelation is the last book. It's the summit, the capstone, the zenith of the Bible. And the book of Revelation in and of itself quotes the Old Testament over like or alludes to it over 700 times, wow. which is a good example to show how they're interconnected, the books are. And when we think of the book of Revelation, though, we have to keep in mind that, number one, when you open up a Bible, like at a Holiday Inn and you have a Gideon's Bible by your hotel room or something like that, right, you know, uh, right. How, it, you know how it has chapters and verses. Well, chapters don't come into the Bible until about the 13th century A.D. And, and verse divisions, which further uh, narrows down the text or, or sets it apart. Verse divisions come into the, t the scriptures about the 16th century AD around the advent of the printing press. So the reason I bring that up is when, when John, who is the author of Revelation, wrote Revelation, there weren't the chapter and verses in it like we have today. 
I see. And, and when he wrote it, he wrote it like a like a play or like a drama. And if we just take out those artificial divisions, the chapters and verses, it, it makes it the book of Revelation much more understandable. So chapter one, for example, chapter one is the introduction. And that would be kind of like at the beginning of Star Wars. Do you know how we have the yellow text crawling up the screen? Sure. Right. That would be like chapter one. It introduces the main character and it introduces the, the setting and the place and et cetera. And then chapters two and three, this is called rising action. This is kind of building up to the to the heart of the story. And then chapters 4 through 19 of the book of Revelation, as we know them today, chapters 4 through 19, that concerns either the, the three and a half years or the seven years of what's called the tribulation period on earth. Uh, the, the 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 second three and a half years is called the Great Tribulation. And it's prophesied way back in the book of Daniel in chapter 9. But the point is the chapters 4 through 19, which is the heart of the book, that's all about the end of the world. And that portion there is, it's divided into seven, seven acts, like a play. And each act has two scenes. And chapter 20 and 21 and 22, then that's the resolution that ties the story or the play or the drama, as it were, together. So to get the best bang for your buck, as it were, to understand what's the end of the world, what's it going to happen, all these kind of things, it's the book of Revelation. And as you said, I'm, I'm one of the few people in the entire world who have the whole book memorized. I've told it dramatically from heart hundreds and hundreds of times. I've written a verse-by-verse commentary on it. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on of, you know, the, the things that that I, I feel like that I have uh, an insight into that maybe other people don't. And so that's where we want to go is Revelation to tell us what's going to happen. And then to answer your second question is, does anyone know the, the day or the hour? Well, number one, the short answer is no, because the Bible says that that no one knows the day or the hour when the, the Messiah, when Christ will return at the second coming. But on the other hand, we do have some interesting kind of uh, insights. The Jewish people, for example, if you were to go to parts of Israel today and you were to go to certain neighborhoods in Israel, they don't even know it's 2020. They have no idea it's the year 2020. It sounds crazy, but it's true. To them, it's the year 5779 in the Hebrew calendar. So 5,779 years, they would say, since creation. And you have this pattern throughout this motif that begins in Genesis, where you have the six days of creation, and then you have the seventh day of rest. And you have then this idea of maybe, you know, six days, because it says in Scripture in Second Peter 3 that a day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. So some Jewish people think, well, in the year 6,000, then that's when the Messiah will return, and then you have a, a day of rest, as it were, like the Sabbath, and then in Revelation 20, you have a thousand-year reign and rule of the Messiah when he returns. So, you know, short answer is no, we don't know, and... But on the other hand, we have some interesting clues or insights or guesses. But something has to happen first. Before all the drama of Revelation, it's the rapture, which means in the blink of an eye, millions of people will disappear from the earth and will be welcomed into heaven. So again, much like Nostradamus's prediction, there's a lot of people who's going to be leaving the earth, right? But 
in the Bible, they will all disappear together immediately. That's the sign that Christians say will let them know the last acts of the Bible have begun. And it's so spectacular, they make movies out of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure, of course. Yeah. And so once that happens, that could happen at any second, according to the scriptures. It's imminent. And then once that happens, it doesn't say how much time. It could be a day, a month, a year, who knows how much time between the rapture and then when the clock starts ticking on the seven years of the Great Tribulation or the end of the world. People are missing. Where'd they go? They're gone. Pandemonium. Okay? And then what happens is whenever that seven years clock starts ticking after that event, Halfway between that seven-year period, according to Revelation chapter 13, that's when the Antichrist, it says, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. So in other words, what happens is the Antichrist is a pseudo-Christ. He's a fake Christ. And Satan is a fake father. And the false prophet is a fake Holy Spirit. So you almost have like this fake trinity going on during this time. And then once the fake Christ, the Antichrist, who proclaims, claims himself to be God in Jerusalem, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He'll be killed, one of his heads is wounded to death, and he comes back to life as it were. He's resurrected. And then after that, in Revelation 13, that's when he causes everyone, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, and that no man might buy or sell except he that has the mark or the beast or the number of his name. And of course, as you know, that's 666. You know, during the book of Revelation, we have the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, these judgments. Now, they're not three different waves of judgments. It's it's like watching a baseball game, as it were, and I'm behind home plate and you're behind the left field fence and someone else is in right field. We're all watching the same game, but we're all having this kind of different angle or perspective on the game. Okay. And so these three waves of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, they're concurrent. They're all happening. So the first seal and the first trumpet and the first bowl are simultaneous. So during that seven-year tribulation period, that's when we have these pandemics. That's when we have these yes. locust plagues. That's when we have, you know, 200 million army coming from the east. This is when we have Armageddon, all that kind of stuff. And then like a great drama, of course, it ends with the Christ, the second coming. And that's Revelation 19. That's when I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. So at the last minute, when the night is the darkest, the light shines through, the Savior comes, destroys the beast, destroys the false prophet, and then that begins that last day, that's that thousand year period, that seventh day of rest, as it were. Now, what we're seeing right now with this plague of locusts traveling through Egypt, devouring everything in its path, what we're seeing with this outbreak as it were of the right. coronavirus and these kind of these are not what what they are are they're they're tiny 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 foretastes of what the the seven waves of judgment on the earth will be during the book of revelation and so these are not these are not signs that the rapture is hap is coming closer because the rapture is imminent I mean, it can happen during a time of peace, during a time of prosperity. It doesn't have to necessarily happen during a time of panic. And Tom says there are multiple instances that prove God works within the framework 
of science. For example, um, we all know the famous story when the Israelites were about to enter into the land of Canaan and take the city of Jericho. They had to cross the Jordan River. Right. And all the Bible tells us is that the Jordan River dried up. That's all it tells us. Okay. Now, what we do know, though, is that, for example, in the 12th century, during the Crusader period, and in late in the Ottoman period, maybe 200 years ago, there are historical occurrences of earthquakes happening in that Rift Valley, which caused the mountains in modern-day Jordan or biblical Moab and Ammon, it caused the, the earthquake caused the mountains to crumble and for the earth to dam up the Jordan River. And cool. this happened in the 12th century and, like I said, in the late Ottoman period, which allowed people to, as it were, walk across the Jordan River. Yeah, and I'm not saying it's not a miracle that God didn't cause the earthquake, but uh, what I'm saying is God's finger didn't come down from heaven and touch it. I mean, God worked sure. within the framework, the laws of science. Sure. And he caused the earthquake, and that's what the earthquake did. It dammed it up. So we can see through, I mean, there's other instances too, but we can see sure. how that... God can use these kind of things. He could use the the flaring of the sun to be like the the first bowl, right? And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the first angel, "Go, pour your bowl on the wrath of God upon the earth." And the first one had poured out his bowl upon the earth, and there fell a noise and a grievous sore on the men. So you could see how he could he could use hailstorms. He could sure. use earthquakes. He can use falling stars and all these kind of things because he created them so falling stars right let's visit the planetary society a california nonprofit started in the 1980s by the likes of carl sagan and now run by bill nye the society who, is a, who didn't call us back by the way that is <laughs> that is Big true jerk. the science guy did not call us back we're That's coming okay. for you nye <laughs> Uh, this society is a non-governmental research and educational arm for public outreach and political advocacy for engineering projects related to astronomy, planetary science, and exploration. But we're more interested in the work of Dr. Bruce Betts, who did call us back. He's the chief scientist for the society, and part of his job is planetary defense. That's right, he's like Superman. That is, he partners with more than a hundred countries across the world looking deep into space for asteroids that could impact the Earth. Dr. Betts says it's not a question of if a big rock will hit the Earth, it's a question of when. Because asteroids have been pelting the Earth and causing damage for millions of years. Uh, certainly, the the early history of the Earth was characterized by impacts, and the Moon was actually formed from a giant, giant, giant impact. But that was four and a half billion years ago. But if you come uh, more recently, the dinosaur killer was uh, was an asteroid ten to fifteen kilometers in diameter that hit off the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico about 65 million years ago. but And that, fortunately, the really, really big stuff hits less often. There's less of it out there. But we've had more recent impacts, such as Meteor Crater in Arizona about 50,000 years ago. The Tunguska event in 1908, where there was an air burst that leveled uh, 2,000 square kilometers of forest. And fortunately, in Siberia, so no... 
humans that we know of were uh, were killed. But if that had hit over a city, it would have leveled the city. And then most sure. re- most recently, in terms of damaging impacts, uh, 2013, Chelyabinsk, Russia, there was an airburst of roughly an 18-meter object that uh, broke up in the atmosphere and the shockwave, broke a lot of windows, knocked down some walls, and injured over 1,000 people. That was just in 2013. So, uh, again, this, is, this isn't something that you have to lose sleep over on any given night. It's not something that happens on a regular basis. But it, it does happen, and it will happen, and the scale of disaster is, uh, is, can be enormous. And, and, before I forget, the important thing is we can actually prevent this large-scale natural disaster, at least the, the bigger objects. But it take, takes a lot of work, but we're getting there. Uh, it's a multi-step process involving uh, groups around the world. So the first, the most important step is the first step, which is finding these objects. And we still have a very, very long ways to go. We think we've found over 90% of the one kilometer and above, kind of the, the dinosaur killer scale. Uh, but we've only found tens of percent of the of one smaller than that. When you get down to uh, city killer size, which can be just tens of you know, football field and smaller, half a football field, uh, we, we found only a tiny percentage of those. But again, it's ramping up. So there are telescopes, there are dedicated surveys, mostly run by NASA, uh, that are tel- dedicated telescopes in Hawaii and Arizona uh, and elsewhere that look, basically you're just looking for dots that move. So you take picture of the sky, you take another picture of the sky. You see if uh, the stars stay in the same place, you're looking for something that moves from one frame to the other. Then you try to figure out, have we seen that before? Oh, yeah, that's that asteroid. Or no, I don't think we have. Then those observers submit everything to what's called the Minor Planet Center, uh, run by Harvard Smithsonian, sponsored by NASA, and they they're like the clearinghouse, and so they then put up on their website, at least in the modern era, uh, these are objects that need follow up, and then there are professionals, but also really advanced amateurs, including some of the ones that we've support that we support on a regular basis with grants that do follow up. You can't know the object's gonna is dangerous until you know its orbit. And, in other words, is it going to hit Earth? And so you need lots of observations to do that. So what happens if we detect a giant but far distant meteor headed directly our way? Surprisingly, Dr. Betts says that calling Bruce Willis isn't his first choice. So there are kind of three major options, although there are a lot of options, three major options. Uh, one of them, which kind of fits the medium size, meaning 100 meter or even more. You got a few years, but not tens of years. You can use what are called kinetic impactors, which is a basic concept. You slam a spacecraft or multiple spacecraft into the asteroid uh, on on the side opposite where you want it to move. So the, the key thing, which was not employed in the highly accurate Armageddon movie, is that you don't need to break apart an asteroid. You, that is an option, but you, you just need to have steer it off course. You just need to steer you just need it to miss Earth. And if you can get right. to it early, you don't have to make really huge changes in its orbit to have them eventually down the road cause it to miss Earth. So you can use kinetic impactors where you slam objects into it and move it that way. You can use what's called a gravity tractor, which 
bizarrely enough, if you have a, a big enough spacecraft and a small enough asteroid and decades of time, you can actually use the tiny, tiny gravity of the spacecraft to gently tug the asteroid to a slightly different orbit. And then wow, you come... It's a little tug, a little tugboat for the yep, asteroid. Exactly. And, the, and then if you have a larger object, a short amount of time, and, but still enough time, you ponder nuclear options. Uh, and in that case, you could be nuclear disruption. Again, you don't, you don't need people in <laughs> to go out there with it. Right, uh, right. It makes for better drama. Uh, and you can use, uh, you can either disrupt or break it apart, or you can deflect it by setting it off near the asteroid, and that will vaporize a bunch of rock on one side, create a big jet of material one way that'll push it the other way. And there are other things. For example, we've we sponsored some early work on a on a more uh, earlier phase idea where you have spacecraft with high-powered lasers and you basically do a slow version of that where you vaporize the rock uh, on one side of the asteroid and get it to move. And then there's the we only have a week's warning um, and then it, then you're down to disaster management and you're evacuating. You're, you're trying to get the word out in the appropriate area area to get people out of the way uh and uh and so it 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 all depends then they well, say that the good point. news is the good news is although impacts are will definitely happen on average and it's just an average but on average smaller stuff hits more often than the huge gigantic stuff and smaller stuff's easier to deal with we we found 20,000 objects that are so-called near-Earth asteroids that come within uh, uh, some distance of of the Earth and present a potential hazard, at least off in the future. It doesn't mean any of them are, are impactors now. Uh, but that's in terms of objects that are big enough to do some, some significant damage so 30 meter objects and above so from small airbursts that would injure people up to huge dinosaur killers we found about 20,000 the problem is we think of that going down to those small sizes uh, we think there are about a million of those objects out there that are near the asteroids so wow. we're we're finding them faster and faster but there's a lot left to be done so how many objects are out there right now? that could affect our planet? There are a small number, meaning less than five uh, objects that have real uh, non, that have probabilities of impact that are still small, you know, like one in 3,000, mm -hmm. but are significantly large enough objects to be concerned about. And some of those, uh, for example, the asteroid that, uh, the NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission is at right now, and we'll be sampling later this year and bringing back samples to Earth. Uh, that asteroid called Bennu has something like a 1 in 3,000 chance of hitting 150 years from now. So there's nothing with a high probability. All of them that have some probability are either off in the future, significantly in the future, or we, you know, odds are that probability will go to zero. But, but there's still ones that don't have a that have a non-zero probability. And you can find lists of these online at uh, JPL's website. They, okay. all, all the information is, is out there. Um, so 
the the biggest fear right now is the stuff we haven't found rather than what we have found. So there you go. Maybe 150 years from now, maybe tomorrow. Who knows? We just know it will happen at some point. It feels like it's going to happen like really soon, <laughs> but but probably not. Probably not. <laughs> I, I doubt it. I doubt it. I, but I will say, uh, you know, I was just thinking about all of these different theories that we have out there. And I just wondered if there was any kind of, of similarities between them. So the Bible has different kind of time equivalencies. You know, the end of the world could really happen at any moment, right? We really don't know when that could happen. It's just the rapture, right? That's what we were told. So I, I have so many questions about this. And I, I think about different plagues and stuff that Nostradamus talked about. Is that could that be the same as a rapture where instead of all these people disappearing at one point, you know, there's a lot of people just passing away. I'm not sure. Uh, I'll throw something else out there. The Mayan calendar, you know, we always talked about that being the end of the world in 2012, right? They basically said that was going to start a new era. Wasn't right? that that was close to the year? When was the White House correspondence dinner when when Obama roasted Trump? Was that 2011? It so had 20, to be around the same the same time, yeah. And I'm guessing, so so if that really was the impetus for Trump to run, then that would have been 2012. <laughs> and there, there you go, Mayan calendar. The end, the end of the world? I think you have hit on something there. That I think you're breaking new ground. So uh, I, think, I think we can wrap this up now, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah, wrap it up. Uh, uh, well, I just wanted to say again that, of course, all of this was done months before uh, any of the kind of current events of the world were taking place. And we obviously know that that's a really serious thing, but we want to be, uh, you know, we want to bring some levity, right? We're going to bring some, uh, some, some fun, some entertainment here as well, and also talk about what I think are some really, really interesting uh, takes on... Uh, something that will happen very, very, very far uh, into the future, right? Yeah, it's def it's not happening tonight, okay? <laughs> Get a grip. Okay, we'd like to thank Dr. Bruce Betts, Tom Meyer, and Victor Baines for sharing their stories with us today. So, because we've referenced California, did you know, Ryan, in the early 1900s, you could take your child to California and let them ride a 400-pound alligator on our website? <laughs> Ripley's.com. You can read about how the California Alligator Farm kept 1,000 gators at the height of its popularity. Believe it or not. How did the owners keep gators from nibbling on children? Find out at Ripley's.com. We've talked a lot in this episode about theories about the end of the world, but one theory has been misunderstood more than any other. Uh, as we noted before, it involves the Mayan calendar in the year 2012. Uh, just to put it simply, why was everybody so wrong about 2012? Why didn't the world end, Brent, in 2012? Jenny Cohen of the History Channel said it best. The first Mayan calendar, known as the Calendar Round, appears to have been based on two overlapping annual cycles, a 260-day sacred year and a 365-day secular year that named 18 months with 20 days each. Every 52 years counted as a single interval 
or a calendar round. And after each interval, the calendar would reset itself, much like a clock. But because the calendar round measured time in an endless loop, ancient Mayans couldn't use it to establish chronologies or relate events with wide spans of time between them. Around 300 BC, priests apparently solved this problem by devising a new method known as the long count, which identified each day by counting forward from a base point calculated to fall on August 11th. 3,114 B.C. So I was going to say real quick, this, <laughs> this, this all comes down to a rounding error. It was going to be my guess. That's what I was going to say. Didn't we learn that in like first grade, second yes. grade, something like yeah. that? All right, please carry on. So basically what they did is they grouped all of these days into sets and uh, they were called Bactoons uh, or cartoons, or sometimes just tunes. Maybe they were called Tiny tunes? I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, but a single cycle of the long count calendar lasts 13 Bactoons, or roughly 5,126 solar years, meaning that it was slated to end on a date correlating to December 21st, 2012. But many Mayan scholars claim to have debunked the reading. The end represents the start of a new era, not the end of days. Uh, proponents of this apocalyptic interpretation, uh, they just misunderstood uh, a poorly preserved hieroglyph, archaeologists say. Oops, our you know, are, are bad, right? Hey, mistakes are made. We get it. Uh, here at Ripley's, whether your predictions are right on the money or in this case, completely off. Um, well, hey, we think we might just find a story in that, too. Believe us or not. Believe it or not. The stars above us twinkle like eyes of flesh and teeth. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. Our executive producer is Amanda Joyner. I edit the show. The Notcast is recorded at my house and Ryan's house. Typically, it's recorded at Herzog Studio, home of the nonprofit Cincinnati USA Music Heritage Foundation. The Notcast intro theme was put together by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. Um, if you like the show, please give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. If you have please. any comments or questions... Or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at ripleys. Do it. And that does it for season three, as predicted by the Mayan calendar, Nostradamus, and the Bible. I think they all and, nailed and, it. And Lori Bruno. I think they all Lori predicted it. Oh, Lori Bruno. Lori Bruno. I know. You Lori love Bruno. Lori You love Lori Bruno. I know. Love you, Lori Bruno. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much to Ripley's for this opportunity. Hopefully we will be back. Um, Anything else to say here, Ryan? Thanks, Ripley's. Thanks, everybody. It's a blast. Believe it or not.
Believe it or not. <laughs>